Welcome to another edition of the Engineering Side of Data, video edition, that is, audio and video. So we're going to be talking about data pipeline testing on this episode, and I have a great guest lined up for you all out there. His name is Bartosz Nikolski. Bartosz, please introduce yourself. Hello, so I'm Bartosz Mikulski. I'm a data engineer right now working on more like MLOps uh, part of data engineering. Um, I'm blogging, so I have a blog, but it will be linked somewhere. Um, I also happen to speak at conferences occasionally. And yeah, that's pretty much about it. Excellent, this. yeah. Now I've been following you on Twitter for a while now, and you have, you like to tweet about testing. And then, you... uh, yes, that's probably the main topic I tweet about. Not very often, but yeah, yeah. that happens. So yeah, I, I will. Um, I'll put a link to your blog that you mentioned in the show notes and your Twitter handle as well, and any other relevant information that will be out there in the show notes and the description of the video there. So I appreciate you coming on talking about data pipeline testing. All right, so let's get right into the topic here at hand. What are the different types of tests? So when I, when I say data pipeline testing, what, what does that uh, mean to you? What do you think about? Yeah, it's kind of tricky because it's not only testing the code. Yeah? The code is important. We have to test it anyway. But in data pipelines, you have like two moving parts. Uh, so it's either the code, you modify it, but also the data changes like all the time. And usually what breaks the pipeline is a modification of the data that even not done by us, but someone else who is generating it upstream. And we are not, 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 not notified before it happens, or maybe we are, but anyway, something has changed and we have to deal with that. Also, if we have machine learning component in our pipeline that might break also because of concept drift, so the data changes and the model doesn't work anymore correctly. Um, so it's pretty much we have two things to test. It's our code and the data that we get. Yeah, that's what really makes it tricky, right? We can write unit tests much like software developers can and should. And then, uh, but we also have that additional tricky component of the data side of things, whether it's or it ends up in a data warehouse or in some model that'll do some scoring or predictions, right? Definitely. So why should we as data engineers test? Well, our work has one purpose. Yeah? We have to deliver the data to the customer, the client, whatever, yeah? someone is using it. And this person or organization has to be sure that the data is correct. So. Like the only purpose of testing is uh, making sure that what we deliver, the product, the final product is, let's say, working. Um, because otherwise, it's kind of pointless. Eh? Everything we yeah. do is pointless if the data is not correct. Yep. Yeah, it's about that trust, right? Establishing that trust that if we put something out there, it's good, right? You can People can count on it. They can bank their reports on it. They can run their models on it. Absolutely. Uh, why don't people, why don't more data engineers write tests, you think? Yeah, because it's difficult. It's not like testing the uh, backend software. 
as I said, we have unit tests, we may have integration tests, and that's pretty much the obvious part. But then you have to test the data, and it stops to be easy, yeah? Because there's a lot of tooling for the testing of the code, and you have metrics are code coverage, so you kind of know when you finish or when it's good enough. And but what about the data? It's never finished. It's never good enough. And yeah, yeah. it gets uh, trickier. So that not even sure if we have achieved the goal. Yeah? yeah, because you will know when there is a bug that you were not uh, doing it correctly, like the, the testing. But until you detect the bug, you, you don't really know it's good enough or not yet. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, when should we be writing tests, right? Is this, and I guess this is more on the code side of things, right? Should we be writing at the beginning, during, or after the development has taken place? Yeah, I think that a lot of people might expect the answer that at the beginning, and that's definitely a good idea, but uh, realistically, I think we'll write it at all of the stages. So some tests at the beginning, some during the development, and some additional tests uh, at the end when we have everything ready, but we want to test a few more things yeah, that might happen. So we expect some problem and we also test uh, this. Um, so I think but we might try to set some rules, but uh, the only thing that matters for me is if you trust the test and you are sure that everything works, if the test passes, it is good enough and it doesn't matter when you when you write the test. But to achieve this goal, you will write them at three different stages, like at the beginning, before the code, during the development and after. Yeah. And that beginning, some people call that potentially test-driven development, correct, at the beginning? Or that's that's a, that's one methodology that you could incorporate, correct? Uh, yes, but in case of testing the data, I think that might yeah. be not very effective. Uh, but obviously, for testing the code is probably the, the best idea. At least, if you can do it, then definitely it's worth trying. Obviously, it is hard. Yeah. Yeah? It's not, yeah. not the easiest way to do it. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's not going to be perfect, definitely. You can always improve it, but that's the good direction to go. Yeah. Try to try the test before. It depends. Before. Yeah, that's probably the good answer there. Yeah. And that's, yeah, good distinction between code and data, right? Yeah. Um, as I said, I follow you on Twitter and I've seen some of your talks, and you're a big fan of functional programming. Why do you think that's important when it comes to writing code tests? Uh, because of the principles of functional programming. Right? Because in functional programming, you have uh, immutability and pure functions and immutability ensures that the data does not change and that's a good property to have in your data data pipeline that the input does not change and uh, also uh, you don't modify it yeah so you either produce something new or you do nothing with this input but you don't change it so you can run the same pipeline again and get the same result and for that you also need this pure functions that uh, produce a value that depends only on the inputs. There are no side effects. And if there is something that's generating uh, some values randomly, you have also a seed for this random generator as the input, so you can 
repeat the pipeline later with the same inputs and get the same results. So that's probably the, the most important part uh, that you need for testing. Yeah? You yeah. get the same input twice and you have the same output. If that's not the case, then you have bigger problem than not having a test. Yeah, yeah? yeah very deterministic. And also easier to understand what's going on in a function, right? So if it's very clear what, what the function is doing, the tests that you write will be very clear as well. And I, I'm referencing some of the points that you made on a talk, and I can post that in the show notes as well. But that really, that point was really driven home, I think, quite well by yourself in this idea of, you know, hey, you know, if you have pure functions, you have very readable tests. And I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah, and you can compose the functions like in functional programming. In this case, it's going to be a composition of part of the pipeline. So that's also easy to understand, but maybe not easy, but at least yeah. easier than if you were had modified code that modifies the state. Yeah. Yeah. I, yes, I agree 100%. And I think that people think of functional programming and it's could be a very daunting concept. I mean, let's face it, we're not, most data engineers are maybe didn't start their career or, you know, maybe they're a little behind on data and functional aspects. Uh, maybe it's, again, maybe it seems daunting, but if you just could remember, you know, that, that aspect of pure functions, that would that really help you out and make things much simpler as, as opposed to much more complex. So, <laughs> which is always good. Very obvious mm -hmm. statement. <laughs> um, it kind of limits what you can do, but, that's the, um, the the reason why we do it. Yeah? This limitation gives you some confidence. Yeah, give you some guardrails, right? Make sure. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so we've talked about uh, a lot about the testing code so far, and let's talk about testing of of the data, right? Now, there's a couple of tools that um, that are that are out there. Actually, there's probably more than more than two, but the ones that come to mind are Great Expectations and uh, DQ. Um, how do they determine good data from bad data? Well, they don't. You have to prepare the set of expectations or validation rules, and then the tool compares your data set to those rules. So if the conditions are met, then the data set passes the validation. If not, then you get some kind of error. Um, so it's there, there is no magic in these tools. Yeah? You have to do your work anyway. Yeah. You have to set this uh, those, uh, validation rules, which means you have to do some uh, data exploration to figure out what can happen in the data. You probably have to understand how the data was produced. So you need some business knowledge uh, to understand what can happen, even if you don't see it in the in the data set. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's also the reason why testing the data is tricky. You need a little bit more than just for testing the code. Yeah, I've used great expectations in the past, and I, yeah, if I recall correctly, you can set those expectations, you know, manually, or you can say here, here's a here's a data set that I would consider good with um, values that are within the range as I expect, right? A normal distribution. Yeah. And then you can pass it and then it kind of says, okay, now I have the context to evaluate future data sets on your behalf. Yeah. So I think that's a pretty handy little feature. Yeah, but if you use the, the data set, you also have to be sure that this data set is kind of 
representative of the production because if it's not, then it, yeah, it does test that doesn't. Yeah, work. and I imagine that's yeah, you just can't train it once, so to speak, and then let it sit. It's probably a periodic um, adjustment, or at least um, yeah, a testing to see if your ranges, your tolerances, still hold true after a while. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's kind of, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. It's kind of like with uh, machine learning. You have trained the the model, but then the data introduction changes, and the model is trying to produce something, but it might make no sense anymore. Yeah, I can see that. Now you mentioned that when these tools see, or you know, some a range, a value of a of a of a, of a column falls outside of a range, right? And you get an error. Is that how do you recommend that's typically handled in production? Are those errors logged? Are there notifications sent out? What, what have you seen as a good way to kind of mitigate that bad data once these tools find it in production? Mm, I'm not sure if that's a good way. <laughs> but what makes sense for me is like separating the data into like maybe two buckets, like the data that is correct and data that is incorrect. And then you might have some manual process of reviewing the data that you rejected for whatever reason. Uh, because when I tried setting up some warnings in, for example, Slack channel that something is wrong, it's uh, usually you get a lot of those notifications and all of them get ignored. So it's kind of pointless to have this test in the first place. Yeah. Um, so maybe we need a, a different uh, process for it, like separating the data, doing whatever you can with the correct values, and then like, every month or every week reviewing the rejected values and see, to, to see what we can do with that. Of course, if we have some data that must be processed like, entirely, we cannot lose anything. For example, it's financial data, then probably the, the only thing that makes sense is stopping the pipeline. You detected the error, something is wrong. We have to deal with that uh, right now. It cannot wait. But, yeah, it de depends what you're Yeah, doing. that makes sense, right? So you can either set the, that data aside, potentially, depending on the severity of it, the criticality of it. But again, and like in your example, financial, maybe, maybe you need to stop the presses, so to speak, and fix whatever data issues that can be fixed and then resume before, yeah. We just, yeah. Credit, you know, depends on the urgency, I imagine, as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we've talked about great expectations. We got DQ, things like that as well. But one of the, I guess, one of the more novel ways that you can use a tool in testing is LakeFS, right? You spoke about that before. What is what is LakeFS and what does it do now? What can it, what it allow you to do that would be incredibly difficult or impossible to do in the past? It's not a testing tool, but uh, what you can, well, what is what it does? It's uh, sort of like uh, branching of code, but for data. So you can have the production branch with your data that is currently used in production. Then when you want to ingest some new data, you create a new branch, like you would do with code. Uh, then in this branch, you ingest the data, process it, and at the end, before you merge it into production branch, before it's ready for for the processing or whatever you want to do with that, you run your test. So if something gets merged to the production branch, you know it's correct. 
and everything that does not pass the validation is isolated. So you don't have to deal with corrupted uh, data sets in production because you have it somewhere else. Nice. That, that, that's the point of uh, using this tool. Actually, the, the, the only feature of it is this branching uh, and atomic matches. So you have either, either everything matching to the production branch or nothing. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so main, the, the possibilities that you've seen or use yourself have been in production, right? You create this alternative branch, and then when, when everything's been verified, you merge it into main. Um, and I imagine you could probably, I'm sorry, go ahead. It's like, I think people were using the uh, concept of staging tables uh, for this in the data warehouses. So you put every new value into the staging table, then you prepare it in some way, process it maybe, and then you insert it into the production tables. And this, this is the same, but for the files in data lake. Yeah, nice. Uh, and I imagine you could probably use it during the development cycle as well, right? If you're going to try out a new transformation, you could without disturbing the main test branch or whatever, you can create you know, another branch and try out that what if and, and see the, the results as well. Yeah, I was, the first time I saw that project, I was like, wow, this is, yes, this is something that is, <laughs> would be great. And yeah, I'm glad it's, I'm glad it's around. And uh, yeah, it's an, it seems to be an incredible, incredible tool. And I, I suspect adoption will be, will be, um, yeah, will be increasing greatly as the word gets out. All right. I mean, this may be difficult to, to introduce to existing pipeline uh, yeah. because you have to prepare it for data in a different location. Uh, but if you are writing something new, then that's no issue into, uh, to, that you might have by adding it. Yeah. It was at a few lines of code, I think, less than eight lines of code and you have it. Yeah. And we should say that it, it is kind of aimed at the object store providers, right? So S3, or maybe maybe yeah. my, that's my understanding. It's S3, it's Azure Blob, things like that. Maybe GCP storage as well. Those are the primary, yeah. yeah I think it's mainly S3 and everything that is compatible with the S3 API. Okay, that makes sense, okay. Can you recommend any... Um, Books, any resources on testing? Like if someone says, it comes to you and says, hey, what do you, you know, I want to be better at testing. I've been bad at it. I avoid it. What videos, what books do you point them towards? Mm, I think I would point this, that person to YouTube and the videos produced by uh, J.B. Reinsberger and maybe Martin Fowler, but in this case, more to the blog than the, the YouTube. Um, if they have some good idea about testing, maybe not all of them are like, uh, well, well, widely used. Yeah. Like maybe the JB Ransberg is uh, saying that integration testing is a scam. Uh, <laughs> he has some different way of dealing with those, those kind of problems. Uh, but I think even if Someone does not agree with that point of view. You probably should uh, watch the video anyway and learn some alternative way of testing. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. How do you? 
So there, you've outlined some uh, some good resources there for testing. Now, how do you persuade? So someone said, hey, why should I test? What do you tell them? I mean, we talked about that a little bit at the beginning of the show, but what, what kind of techniques or, um, yeah, what kind of arguments do you use to persuade people to write tests? The problem is that nothing works. Yeah? You cannot persuade people. You can show them that you test and it gives you some benefits. Like you can finish the work faster, you get less uh, errors. And that finishing the work faster is kind of obvious in data engineering because if you compare the time that you need to make some changes and run the pipeline, um, and you compare it that with running some tests locally, then you see a difference. Yeah, It's not like one minute, but that's usually one, one hour or, or more. But that's kind of uh, easy to, to demonstrate. And I think that's the, the, the only way to persuade someone to show the results. Yeah? Because you, you cannot argue with the results. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> you finish something earlier and it works. So apparently the, the method is correct. Yeah. Yeah? You can only argue with results on social media. Outside of that, yeah. <laughs> outside of that, you can't, right? <laughs> Now, so, all right, so we have tools like Great Expectations, a host of great unit, like PyTest is one of my favorite unit testing tools for Python. You got Great Expectations for the data. You got great things like LakeFS. What else can we do? I mean, those things are great to make things easier. How do we make things even easier than that? Right? What are, what are some of your thoughts around that? Uh, I think behavioral driven development does to have the specification in more business-facing way. It doesn't mean that you have to show it to anyone, but it's, um, it, it means that you might write it to, in a way that you understand what's the, the business case, yeah? and then you have the code that's testing the specification, like implementing the specification in a way that you can test the code. Um, that might be uh, one, one of the ideas that you Oh, so making... You're, you're talking about having business users, business users write tests to some degree, right? Like, here's what I'm expecting this data to look at. Yeah, that's probably not going to happen. Like, no, nobody will write the test for you, but uh, you might ask for clarification and then you write the specification and the, the, the test for it. And yeah, you, you have two benefits. You have the test and you have the explanation uh, regarding what, what's happen, what happens in, in the code. Yeah. yeah. So that, that might be a good way. Um, I'm not sure yet if it's a good way, but I'm trying yeah. to, to test yeah, it. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, at least from a realistic, I mean, as developers or engineers, we can, you know, we can uh, assume what's a good data set, which great expectation expectation we should shut, you know, set and the range is involved. But if we have a business user there that knows the data or perhaps an analyst, they could help write those tests. And if we could somehow bridge what they know with the actual physical test, that could be, yeah, I could see that being easier and make our tests more effective. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, thanks for coming on the show, uh, the, this episode. I really appreciate it. Folks at home, please subscribe. Uh, like the video. Uh, I'm going to get the audio out on the usual uh, podcast uh, destinations, uh, wherever you subscribe, and then uh, we'll get this video up on YouTube as well. All right. Thanks, Bartosz. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you for being here.